I'm excited about this sermon. I had a really good time preaching it in our first service, and so I'm hoping you'll help me out uh, at the 9.30 service. You willing to do that? All right, stand to your feet. Let's read this together. Last week, we talked about how you shouldn't prepare for a funeral where God is trying to resurrect something, right? And that we carry things a lot of times that we don't need to carry, don't have the strength to carry. And how the ladies were carrying spices to the tomb to prepare, to anoint a body that was already raised from the dead. And so this week, uh, we're going to talk about the disciples. Luke chapter 24, verses one, starting verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They had found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Angels were wearing their bling. <laughs> gleamed like lightning. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? Don't we do that a lot? The Bible says that this flesh is rotting away. It's corruptible. And yet we always look for the answer here, don't we? He said, why do you look for the living among the, why do you look for the answer among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you? While he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified on the third day, be raised again. And then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Now verse 11, listen, this is important. But they did not believe the women. Because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. You have the infinite ability to change us every time we look into it. And so we pray that it would renew our minds this morning. Make us different than when we came. Make us more effective. Make us ministers of your gospel and all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Look at your neighbor and say, believe it or not. Believe it or not. Anybody remember Ripley's Believe It or Not? I remember as a kid growing up watching that, Ripley's Believe It or Not. I did a little search online this week about Ripley's Believe It or Not. There's a place in, I think there's a place in Ocean City. You ever seen that with a shark coming through the building? And there's one in, around Times Square in New York City. I walked by it. And there's a video online of a guy standing out front driving a nail into his nose. And I thought, whoever thought you can make a living driving a nail into your nose? But this guy's pulling it off. So he's standing out for another thing, and it's believe it or not. And so it's so outrageous. He's taking this long spike like this long, and he's, you know, working it up, working the crowd. He's like, I'm going to drive this nail into my nose, and he sticks in his nose. With, and then he hits it with a hammer. Bink, bink. And it's real. Believe it or not, believe it or not, it's real. So a lot of our issue with the gospel is that it's not a believable story, right? I mean, if you wrote a story how to save all mankind, you probably wouldn't have written it that way. Probably would have created some laws. We just don't think like God. 
And I don't know about you, but I'm totally fine with that. Because a believable story to you may still be unbelievable to me. So it's just good that it's unbelievable to everybody. Right? That God's ways are not our ways. His thinking is not our thinking. So when God decided to write the story to save all humanity, he sent Jesus. And he lived the perfect life. 33 years, people cheered him, begged for him to heal them. And then when it came right down to it, they strapped him to a cross and killed him. And those same people that begged to be healed cheered him dying. And then they put him in a tomb. And then on the third day, he rose again. I would have never. It's like watching the cliffhanger in the movie. Like, I never expected that. Rise again on the third day? Nobody's ever done that before. I mean, yeah, there's been good people live, and there's been people say a lot of good things, but nobody's ever died and then risen to save us. So going into it, it just it's like a Ripley's Believe It or Not story, right? Where you're, where you're waiting on them to, to pull the curtain back and show us how it really, the trick really happened. But the truth of the matter is it wasn't a trick, it was real. The issue comes in this story, like we said last week, when you put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together, you get sometimes very different stories, but they're all talking about the same thing. So it's like having four witnesses at the same event, you're going to get a different account of that same thing. So when you put them all together, you get this massive amount of chaos on resurrection morning. And what happens is, is, is that Mary Magdalene, some other women walk, go up to the tomb. And when they get there, there's the, they're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to roll the stone away. When they get there, there is no stone there in front of any matter of fact, there's not even any body there anymore. And so what happens is Mary Magdalene runs off to tell Peter. Because when you combine all the stories together, you, you get this idea that Peter and John may not be with the other disciples. And so he run, she runs off, she goes to tell Peter, and then what happens is angels show up to the women that are left there in their bling. And they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And go back and tell the disciples. So those women now leave to go back and tell the disciples that we're picking that up in Luke. And they go back to tell the disciples and the others that are with them. And they don't believe them. Isn't that a frustrating point in your life? Where you know something to be absolutely true. And, some, and they don't believe you. It makes you want to fight, doesn't it? You know, like, my dad's better than your dad when you're a kid. And they're like, no, he's not. But you know it. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is. My dad will beat your dad up. <laughs> no, he won't. Yes, he will. You ever heard of recency bias? Now, I'm not a big investor, but I like to read things and listen to investors. I like to listen to rich people. You can learn a lot, man. You listen to poor people. That's not good. Listen to, if you want to learn something, rich, listen to somebody that's got money. So I listen to them on the radio. I read their books. And I heard a, a term one time called recency bias. And it's basically when the latest, uh, your decisions are impacted by the latest thing that's happened to you. You have a bias towards the most recent event in your life. Well, when it works in the stock market, see the stock market goes up and it goes down. Somebody say amen. It goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it, you're like, man, it's, it's going up. I'm making money now. Everybody's all confident, right? Then it goes down. And then everybody's like, we're all going to die. 
And so it goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. But the stock market, what, is now around 21,000? That's the highest it's ever been. I know you're nervous. You're like, oh, it's time for a crash. But what it does is it goes like this. If you look at a chart, it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And now 2017, we're all the way up to 21,000. So what happens is, is when you're in the middle of a crash, you'll call your investment guy up and you'll be like, breathing heavy, ready for a heart attack. You have blood pressure cuff on and, and you're just like, uh, uh, tell me how bad it is. I don't know what to tell me how bad it is. And what do they all say? Calm down. You're in it for the long haul, right? Calm down. And then you pick up your phone to your friend and you go, this dude's crazy. He's telling me to calm down, just lost all his money. He's telling me, and your friend's like, pull it all out. Take it all out. You can't, we're all going to die. Take it out. You got to buy gold and we're going to move into the bunker. And somebody's like, he was talking about me in 2008. I don't know. But the recent thing that happened is causing you to act the exact opposite way that you should be acting. Because you know when things are cheap, you should buy them. I got a little ringy dingy here on the, on the mic, guys. I, I always say one person's, one person's difficulty is another person's opportunity. Right? Come on, you experience this at yard sales. <laughs> I know you. I know how you operate. You go to a yard sale... And, and, the, and the poor lady is standing at the table at a yard sale. And, and you, you say, oh, hey, how are you? She said, well, I'm getting a divorce and having to liquidate all this stuff. And she's got $20 on a ride lawnmower. You say, well, you take 10 <laughs> You got no compassion. You're just like, stock market's crashing, and I'm taking your stuff. I'm taking your stuff. So what we do is we get recency bias because the latest thing that has happened affects our judgment into the future. That's why you say, he left me and I'll never trust another man. Another man. That's why you say, she left me, I'll never get married again. Because what the recent thing that happened is affecting your judgment, good or bad, into the future. So in the stock market, when it crashes, everybody pulls their money out when that's when the deals are, Right? You should be putting your money in it. Now, let me make a disclaimer. I don't make any, you know, I don't have no idea what I'm talking about. So don't, don't, none of y'all run out there and start buying stocks. That, well, Pastor Chris told me to buy it. I don't know. What that so we, we let the most recent thing that has happened affect our judgment. It's recency bias. When, you're, when your kids have been really good up to 14 and then they start to rebel a little bit and you start throwing your hands up in the air. Because the last thing they did was lie to you. Now, now you think it, it, all hell's broke loose. You don't know what to do. And so you let being worried make you inconsistent when the, when the thing that they need is for you to be consistent like you have been up to 14. But because we get worried and scared, we start to become inconsistent, right? God, I don't. You know, you know, I, I thought you were going to be with me, for me, uh, you know, you give me, prosper me, all this stuff. And now this has happened. And so now I'm actually praying less because I don't know if I trust God as much as I did before all this mess. And so now I'm get, becoming inconsistent when, because recency bias has caused me to think differently than I did before the event. When really the event is what it is, right? You can't change the event. But if you start operating differently because of the event, 
that's going to cause trouble later. I believe this is what happened. One of the things that happened this morning when the women were running back. You know, I I want to give them a, a little bit of a break because I don't know how many of us have ever experienced this. You know, these people were following Jesus who had raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Four days. He shows up to what they think is late and he shows up and they say, his body already stinks, Lord. He's been in the in the tomb four days and he says, don't worry about it. This won't end in death. And they're like, huh? It already has. So he gets there. They're all crying. He's crying. And then he walks to the end of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. And they're hands on in this miraculous healing because he says, hey, you take his grave clothes off. I like Jesus. He's like, I heal him. You clean him up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, so that he walks, he walks out. They've experienced resurrection right in front of their eyes. They've experienced him feed 4,000 people on Mount Side, 5,000. They've experienced him healing uh, somebody without even going to their house. They experienced him raising people from, they've experienced all this. And we know they were kind of gaining for position. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, their mother comes to Jesus and says, hey, when you come into your kingdom, will you put my, one of my sons on your right and one of my sons on your left? They're thinking, we're going to the top with Jesus. And we want to make sure we've got a seat beside him when he gets there. And so to have all that hope and faith wrapped up in him, only to watch him go out without a fight. You know, I don't know, you and me, I would have been getting, getting the staff together going, listen, they're coming to get me. And I need some help. <laughs> We're going to be praying in the garden tomorrow night, and they're coming. Peter, I already know you're terrible with a sword, but swing it, man. Just swing it. <clears throat> I've been setting up booby traps, right? I got a, I got a string with some tin cans strapped across the trees. Like, uh, hey, the, the, the thing's rattled. Get in your positions. We got to fight. They watch him go out without a fight. They watch him get arrested, beat, without giving an e- even an explanation of who he was or why he was doing it. They watch him die on the cross, and they watch his body put in the tomb. So I, maybe we could give him just a little bit of a break. Recency bias. The last thing they witnessed was Jesus dying. So you can imagine when the ladies came back that they weren't too keen on, are you kidding me? We're done with the miracle thing. We're done with all this great talk about the kingdom of God and how it's going to come to pass. Listen, listen, they got to him. Let's be realistic. They got to him. They killed him. They arrested him. You saw there's nothing we could do about it where there's not that many of us. So now, now you want us to have hope when the, when the real thing that we need to be thinking about here is how not to be killed the same way. And if you read the beginning of Acts, you find out that they were locking themselves in rooms for fear of the Jews. They were already scared to death. They killed him. I, don't, I already know. I don't have half the power he has. So what's going to stop him from getting me? And now these women are coming back telling me that he's risen, that they saw angels, that the tombstone is rolled away. That sounds to me like nonsense. I don't want to hear it. So if you put yourself in their shoes, you could see, you know, too often times of the disciples are like, well, they're just dumb without faith. You forget that Peter got out of a perfectly good boat and walked on water. And you're like, yeah, but he did slip up. He walked on water. 
don't care how fast I run off that pier, I sink every time. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just like, you tilt your head back, get your feet running real. Is that a good running stance, by the way, with your head back? I don't think it is. I've never seen anybody in the Olympics like that. That's my go-to, though, when I feel like I'm really fast. I always sink. He walked. One of two people walked on water. And recency bias will get you every time, won't it? Lord, I thought you were going to deliver me. But I'm in the middle of the storm. And that's all I can remember right now. I can't remember the time before. I can't remember the time before that. I can't remember your promise. All I know is what's happening right now, and I don't like it. Recency bias. They called it nonsense. Nonsensical. This doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. We know he's dead. I'm glad God doesn't depend on it making sense. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That should encourage you. You know why? Because it says most people will think you're foolish. That's what it says. The message of the cross is foolishness to those perishing. So the people that you're talking to are like, they're crazy. They come to work every day talking about Jesus did this, Jesus did that. That makes no sense to me. Here's the issue. We always want to wrap it in stuff that makes sense, though, don't we? We want to wrap it in stuff that makes sense. We want to bend the gospel so that it makes sense to people. So we say stuff like this. We bend the gospel. We say, God helps those who help themselves. It's not in scripture. He said he came to set the captive free, bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for prisoners. And we're running around telling people God helps those that help themselves. What about those that can't help themselves? He touched lepers who could affect no change in their life whatsoever except to die. And he walked in and touched them. So you're going to go to a leper and say, hey, uh, God helps those that help themselves. And you're like, I guess I'm done then. But we like to make sense out of things. We like the little slogan that'll fit in a, in, a, in a nice wrapper. If I'm good, God loves me more. Now that makes more sense to us, right? If I'm good, God loves me more. Because that's what we do with our kids. In our friends. In our relationships. If they're good to us, we love them more. Come on, you do that with your husband. Right? I see it on Facebook every week, man, I got the greatest husband ever. I'm like, boy, he must be acting right. Because I know when he's acting up, you don't post anything. Just frowny faces all week. Thumbs down all week. I'm like, boy, he must have got into it this week. Next week, I got the best husband ever. No, because our love and appreciation is always conditional. So we, so in order for it to make sense to us, we have to make God conditional, right? Well, if I'm better, what I'm, if I pray more, he loves me more. If I do good to people, he loves me more. We, we say things like good people go to heaven. Not true. Redeemed people go to heaven. But that doesn't make sense, does it? You be the preacher at the funeral with the guy everybody loves and has done a ton of good stuff, but you know he was not redeemed and you stand up and tell him he's not going to heaven. It doesn't make sense. 
We can't, we don't want to wrap the gospel. We want to wrap the gospel up in something that makes sense. He was good. He did all this good stuff. He was generous. He gave to the poor. He helped out the community. And yet he was, he was away from God and he didn't go to heaven. How many people want to accept Christ? That's not going to happen. They're going to be like, roll him out. You're not going to get, that's a quick way not to get invited back to a funeral. It'd be better off for you to say, man, he's a good guy. I don't know what happened. Let God figure it out. We want to wrap it up to where it makes sense. We don't like the idea that God doesn't make sense. It's difficult for us to explain it. The women come back with a story. Here's what I think we do to try to get people, to convince people. Here's what we do. Watch this. Watch this. We will twist our lives into something that looks like God's blessing to get people on the hook for Jesus. Now watch, watch what I mean by this. We rarely ever witness when we're down and out. Do we? No, because that wouldn't make sense. Because what you could say, I got cancer. Lord is faithful. He has blessed me. And the other person on the other side of the table is like, what? You're you're sick. I know, but God's blessed me. No, he hasn't. You're sick. I know know it's hard to explain God's blessed me. And, And he... And, and he's healing me. No, no, the doctor said he wasn't. Yeah, but I, what I'm telling you is he is. What I'm telling you is he's got me, he's got me in the palm of his hand, man. He's, he's walking me. I, I, feel like Paul, I feel like David where even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil because, because he's with me. His rod and staff are there and, and he's preparing a table for him. And they're like, that doesn't make any sense. So here's what we do. We typically keep our mouth shut in that area. But when the money's flowing in, when the, when the, when the house is nice, when the new car pulls up in the driveway, what do we say? Oh, man, God is blessing me. God, God saved me. Because it's easier to get people to follow us if there's prosperity attached to the gospel and not suffering. Right? Come along with me. Your life might suck for the next 40 years. But I'm telling you what, there's an eternity that you can't imagine. Well, sign me up for that, man. I, man, you know, I, I'm signing up for my life to suck. I think that's great. No, no, no. We don't, we want it to make sense. So anytime we sign up for a club, it's for the benefit of the club, right? And so in the church, we want to wrap it up. And if you follow Christ, he'll bless you and you'll get more stuff than you had before. If you follow Christ, he'll bless you and you'll be healthier than you were before. If you follow Christ, he'll bless you and your kids will behave. That ain't got nothing to do with it. I'm telling you that right now. I've seen some nasty church kids over my life. (laughs) But we want it to make sense. And God says, listen, I can't help you in that area. Because it's not going to make sense. It's not going to make sense to give thanks in every situation. But that's what I've asked you to do. It's not going to make sense to bring your request to God. And even if the circumstance doesn't change, he'll give you the peace that passes all understanding because the God of peace will guard your heart and soul. I know it doesn't make sense to give away. But God's economy works different. 
It doesn't make sense. But what we try to do is we try to proselytize people and we try to wrap the gospel up in a way that makes sense. And then when they get to Jesus, they get disappointed because of this. He's not handing out candy canes year-round. And we've wrapped the gospel up. And if you show up to church every week and you do this and you do that, then God loves you more and he'll give you more. And, and, and you won't have any suffering in your life when the, when the Bible's the exact opposite of what that says. Paul said he gloried in the suffering. You're like, oh man, another one of them suffering sermons. I'm just afraid we're trying to make too much sense of it. When he said his ways are higher than our ways. That his thoughts aren't like our thoughts. And we don't need to wrap the gospel in something that it's not. So the women return with a story, and, 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 and what you see is they just told what they saw. They just told what they saw. Can I ask you this morning just to be confident with your story? Just be confident with your story. Don't be afraid about what, a, what everybody else's story is. I want you to be confident with your story. You say, what do you mean? Because I think most of us hide a lot of it. Don't we? We hide a lot of our story because it wouldn't make sense if we told the whole thing. But what I want you to see, those women were so impacted by what they had seen and heard and witnessed that they didn't, it doesn't seem like they got together and said, okay, we need to get our stories straight so they'll believe us. They just ran back and told the story the way it was. So here's the beauty about being redeemed and being saved. That it's just your story, right? It doesn't have to make sense. Somebody say, thank God. So I was getting stressed out. It doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be pleasant. It doesn't have to be pretty. It doesn't have to be any of those things. It just has to be your story. It just has to be your story. And here's what I want us to do today. I want us to all make a commitment that we won't be ashamed of it anymore. That we won't let what has happened to us in the past keep us from witnessing what God is doing in the future. Right? All right, I'm going to get to the good part now. Watch this. When Jesus was alive on the earth, he picked 12 disciples. Picked them. Hand-picked them. Hand-picked them. Peter. Come follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men. Matthew, the tax collector. Hey, come follow me. He, he's picking these guys. Now what you have to understand is, when you were a rabbi back then, most of them didn't go around picking people. They, they, made, they, they applied to follow. And then the rabbi would, would choose the best out of all the candidates. It's like a college application, right? I didn't feel like filling those out because I typically wasn't at the top of the heap. So I'm like, hey, I come and hang out with you if you want. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm a great student. <laughs> and so they, but Jesus broke all those molds and he picked people that nobody else would pick. Matter of fact, we know this because when, when Peter and, and James were before the Sanhedrin after they had, after they had seen the man healed, they called him before and, and they gave this great testimony of Jesus. And, and, and the leaders got together and they went scratching their heads. They're like, 
This doesn't make any sense because these are not learned individuals. These are not learned men. They're not educated men. We don't even know where they got the power to say this type of stuff. So it was always confounding the wise. What? He takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And so he goes to Matthew the tax collector and he says, Hey, Matthew, what are you doing this afternoon? Let's, co- let's have dinner at your house, man. Like hanging with you, tax collectors. No. Nobody has friends that work at the IRS, do you? People start talking about, I work at the IRS. You're like, man, I am busy. I can't, I can't hang out with you. And then Jesus got accused of eating. Well, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. You see, tax collectors were in a different category than even sinners were. And yet he handpicked those people. Now watch this. Those handpicked people were in the room. We know they were afraid. We know they were locking the doors. We, we know all this. We, we know they were fearful for their lives. They were in the room. And these women went to the tomb and came back. Have you ever heard the term unreliable witness? It's when, it's when somebody wants to call a witness and because of what they have done or their lifestyle or the, or the way people look at them, they're deemed unreliable. Someone who's evidence is unlikely to be accepted during a trial or other hearing. Unreliable witness. Watch this. The women, God picked all these unreliable people to start with, right? Peter, James, John, Andrew, all these guys, Matthew. He picks them, Judas. He picks them. Unreliable witnesses. And yet those same people that he picked are sitting in the room, scared to death. And then women who visited the tomb came to tell them the story of the resurrected Christ. And in that culture, the women were more unreliable than the tax collector. Not because they actually were, but just because the culture deemed them that way. Aren't you glad that God knows how to use irony to get to us? Here are these guys nobody would pick, unreliable witnesses. And when it comes to revealing the resurrection of the one they just saw die, he sent women to tell them. And so the women show up. I don't even know, you can forget your past pretty quick sometimes, can't you? And you can get self-righteous in a moment. The women show up and they say, that's nonsense. Okay. But it happened. It's nonsense. Can't believe them. It's nonsense. Can't believe them. I think we need to spend less time trying to figure out if we are believable. Imagine the women walking to the tomb that morning. Going, man, if he did raise from the dead, nobody's going to believe us. We're women. I wish God would have sent some believable people. You will sit on your testimony because you're afraid your reputation will keep people from trusting it. You just sit on it. You're like, nobody's going to believe me. I got a criminal record. I've had broken relationships. I can't can't figure out. Nobody's going to believe me when I tell them Jesus heals. I'm sick. Nobody's going to believe me when I tell them he can deliver. My life's been a wreck for 20 years. Nobody's going to tell me. Nobody's going to believe me when I tell them that he, that, that, that he, he gives peace because, 
because I'm not in peace a lot. Nobody's going to believe me. I'm an unreliable witness in this case. And, and, I, and I don't feel like being a Ripley's Believe It or Not sideshow. So I'll just say nothing. I'll just say nothing because it's easier than having the fear of people saying, that's nonsense. Believe that. The God of the universe cares about me. When it doesn't really look like he cares about you. I'm not going to believe that. It's an unreliable witness. I want to let you know, if you're feeling like that this morning, you're in pretty good company. The first people that got to witness the resurrection of Christ were in the same category. The people he chose to show up at the tomb, empty tomb first, were in the same category as you. Ain't nobody going to believe this. But here's what I want you to do. Watch this. Stand up. That's what I want you to do first. I'm going to tell you something later. When we feel unreliable, we feel like we have to go out of our way to prove something, right? Ain't nobody believe this, so I got to make up a, I got to figure out some way to prove it. Nobody's going to believe this. I got to figure out some way to prove it. I got to figure out. Listen, God can prove himself. God can prove himself. He doesn't need your help. He didn't call you. He didn't say, prove me. He said he would use the foolishness of preaching that message to see people. He would use the foolishness of your story to lead people. He would use the nonsensical nature of your whole life to bring people to him. He said he would use, if you would just witness what you saw, if you just witness what happened, he could prove himself, right? He said he could prove himself every time. Just open your mouth. Ladies, just go back and tell them. Just go, don't try to prove it. Just go back and tell them. He didn't say, hey, take a piece of cloth just to make sure they see it. He didn't say, take a selfie with yourself in front of the tomb to make sure everybody sees it empty. He didn't say any of that. He said, just go back and tell them and then I'll prove it when I need to prove it. And you know what he did? Those same guys that sat there in that room, scared to death, locking themselves in the room, oh, week after week, day after day, the women go and say, hey, listen, he's risen. He's not dead anymore. They say, that's nonsense. And then guess what Jesus does? He walks through the locked door. So the people that you're looking at, the people in your family, the friends at work that you're going, I'm telling them this story and they think it's stupid. God has the power to walk through their locked heart and open it up. He doesn't need you to conjure something. Just tell them. Just witness it. Just do what he, I've given you power to be a witness, not to have to prove anything else. You tell them that I'm God and I'm not dead and I'm powerful to do above and beyond you could ever ask or imagine and then leave the proof to me. Amen. I'm going to tell you something. That takes a lot of weight off your shoulders, doesn't it? 
The resurrection happened. You just have to be a witness to it. He's redeemed your life. Don't try to prove it. Just be a witness. He's restored you. Just be a witness. He's healed you. Just be a witness. Don't worry about, do they believe it that he will prove himself because he can prove himself better than you can tell the story. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord. I pray right now that there be freedom in this room to tell the story. I pray that there wouldn't be one thing that has happened in a person's life that would hinder them from telling the story. I pray that you remove all bias to recent events. I pray that you'd free us to tell your goodness, Lord, and then we'll depend on you to prove it, God. I pray that you'd... give freedom this morning. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray.